Hello and welcome to the Big Ideas Into Action podcast from the World Resources Institute. I'm Nicholas Walton. And in this episode, we look at the big picture. How should we frame the world's most pressing environmental and developmental challenges? And what can we do about them? Where better to go for an answer than WRI's new president? We don't have the option to do one thing at a time, you know? We'll fix carbon first, then we become equal, then we have prosperity, and then we'll fix nature. There is no such path. The situation is certainly grave, but there are answers, if we understand the nature of the challenges and the urgent need for effective action. The path is narrow, so we have to find solutions that are not only good for people and nature, but creates jobs, but also decarbonizes. The World Resources Institute has a new president and CEO. Annie Dasgupta, formerly the head of the WRI Ross Centre for Sustainable Cities, has taken over from Andrew Steer at a critical time for the earth, for the natural world and for humankind. The new IPCC report underlines the gravity of the climate change challenge that we now face. And here at WRI, we also engage with related issues from forests and cities and oceans to energy, water, food and much more. So how does Annie see these multidimensional challenges and how will the Institute find the necessary solutions? But first, a personal question. What was the spark that led to his interest in these issues? I think, Nicholas, it's not one spark. It's kind of been a growing set of spark that has led to where I am right now. I think um, from the very beginning, you know, I grew up in a family, pretty middle class, but very, very progressive parents. And two things that was clear growing up in Delhi was the abject poverty all around us, but also my parents focused on justice and public service. They really believed we were here to make the world better. Then my education that was very focused on poverty, then my work at the bank that was very focused on development. So I come to this issue very much starting from poverty and development, and then arrive through that process how development and environmental issues of pollution, how people actually live, and how they live also impacts their own surrounding. So I came to the environmental issue from a development issue. And so equity and justice environment has always been a central to my thinking. And as I came to WRI, the issues of how we can actually bring development issues and climate issues together became central to my own thinking in the cities program. And at that point, luckily for me, WRI itself and the climate movement itself come to this kind of growing conclusion that development and climate issues can't be separated and needs to actually very much be together. So it's not one single spark. All these different experiences that cumulatively, I think, made my own thinking of how change can happen, how we need to accelerate change, how people live and how the planet functions has to be a you know, joined up question and joined up answer. Did you get anything specific from your upbringing in India, in Delhi? Very much so. Uh, very much so. I grew up in Delhi, in a, you know, now I look back, maybe lower middle class neighborhood, which was mixed of people had, that had arrived from all over the country, actually. It's kind of an immigrant neighborhood, immigrant from Pakistan initially. And if you grew up in Delhi, they were doing the 70s when I grew up. Three things what stands out, you know, first of all, how fast things were changing, how the cities were growing uh, leaps and bounds across every direction you can think about, how sheer wealth and abject poverty lived next to each other, and how the environment was getting degraded, pollution, the river, Yamuna was completely polluted by the time I was in college, like completely polluted, and how 
there was at the same time real excitement in the city. So this kind of a mix of poverty, growth, excitement, and optimism that was Delhi. You know, Delhi was growing from the 70s to now. So it might be twice its size. And that kind of a intermixing of issues, intermixing of abject pollution at the same time, cars were growing, but optimism very much shaped my thinking of how solutions can be bred and how cities need to function better for the people who live in them. Coming from the cities program of WRI and then stepping into this position where you overlook the whole institution, does that actually help you see things in a different way? Because over the last few years, the climate question has naturally dominated a lot of environmental thinking because the, you know, fixing the climate question is so important. But after all, if you look at human experience of the environmental challenges out there, most people at the minute, especially with such great urbanization going on, most people are actually experiencing the great challenges of our time, the great environmental challenges of our time in cities. So, so have you have you learned something from your position working in the cities team and then moving across into this broader institutional role? I absolutely think so, Nicholas. The two things that stand out to me. One is, as just what you said, how fast things are moving. The urbanization, and if you look at sub-Saharan Africa now or South Asia, how much is going on, how much is cities are growing. At the same time, this coexistence I mentioned of poverty, a billion people in cities live in slums. A billion people out of 3.5 billion people who live in cities live in slums. At the same time, there will be 2.5 billion more people in cities by 2050. So if you just think about the sheer numbers of how much change is taking place, it's a place where a lot of things are happening that we can learn from. And where I think my learning has been this whole coincidence of growth, excitement, of course, prosperity to some that has come from it, but also coexisting of poverty and serious, serious environmental degradation from air pollution to water to land that is going on where people are living in the middle of degradation and pollution. And at the same time, I work with many mayors over these years. It's like a factory of solutions. The city, because mayors and have to respond to the citizens, it creates this place for experimentation and solution that is you know, has a much shorter cycle of development. For example, middle of COVID, cities across the world have tried to figure out how, when there were no traffic, how to use their streets differently for walking, for biking, for other things. In cities like Bogota, they have permanently extended miles and miles of biking. These kind of quick experimentation and testing something and doing cities is kind of its place that has happened. So it's really exciting that with how solutions can be incubated and tested. I also think that it's a great place to see how these solutions need to be politically possible, that you need to create a coalition that can support the solutions to move forward, how you can bring this climate and development and prosperity story together. At the same time, this work in cities doesn't get me ready for other things I'm very excited to learn about because we have to solve the bigger issues of nature, oceans and forests and agriculture which I'm really excited about and looking forward to, though the solution development might be different, but these are very much part of the solution, what WRI should be about. It sounds like this has given you the mindset that you see the challenges ahead, but you see them through the prism of finding solutions to those problems. I absolutely think so, Nicholas. If you think about the climate movement or where we are, not just climate, 
we have been pretty good as a community to make the point that climate is real, it's important. And also, I think WRS played a very important role in the community in this, making the broader case in climate and economy or economic development or prosperity can coexist. We have, I think, very successfully done so. And if you look at the United States, you know, um, the Mr. Biden inspiration, basically the climate plan is called America's jobs plan. This is the direction. But the next stage, I feel, and this is where I think WRI should be, is about converting these aspirations into actual policy and investment finding solutions that can show people that this is possible and greening and economic development can happen at the same time. It will create jobs. It will make the air cleaner. Our kids will be better off. That once we actually show this on the ground, I think the political support for these actions will increase. So my own feeling is you're absolutely right. There's optimism, but we actually have to convert this optimism to outcomes that creates a much broader support, political support for these movement. And I think we are kind of in the cusp of that broader support. In some countries it's happening, but not happening in every country yet. I was struck earlier, you just mentioned the mind shift you're going to have to do to be able to take in oceans and forests and food and all of the other areas where WRI works. And yes, there is a shift from just concentrating on cities, but in cities, you get so many of these aspects anyway. Obviously, you get food, you get transport, you get uh, all of the other environmental challenges, health, etc., coming together in one place. How, how difficult is it for you personally, moving from cities to this much more multifaceted environmental kind of scope that you're taking on? You know, one thing that is I've always uh, kind of focused on working on cities and focused our whole program is how cities is a system. Everything comes there. So everything that you can think about from forest to water to energy to transport buildings happen in cities. And the way a good city functions when the city is able to actually understand the system and figure out what levers they can push when and what is possible, what is doable, and also what is ambitious. So that approach of looking at cities as a system, a microcosm of what's happening, actually has been very helpful to me. And I think that approach of thinking of systems at a national scale and global scale will definitely translate. And I can already see that in the brief time I've been president. So that systems approach, how different things interact and how to get to solution, not only we need the science, we need political support and more than that, a coalition of actors, not just the government that will support in the long term. Most changes we're talking about will take a long time to shift. Includes not only technical or physical changes, but mind shift changes of how we consume, what we think of, whether we choose to drive a car or take a public transport, or we choose to eat meat or not. These are going to be very soon personal decisions we have to make and we have to have a mind shift change in society. But let's not forget that more than 50% of population in the world lives in cities, and very soon 75% of population in the world will live in cities. So cities is not just kind of a sector, you know. It is a very big part of the human system. And 70, 70 sometimes very 75, depends on how you count it, of global emission comes from cities, doesn't get created in cities, but comes because of urban activities. So if one could get the cities working successfully, this is very much one of the subsystems we have to deal with and understand and support for a change. So I very much think the cities is a very important part, that, but cities alone is not enough. I, I absolutely believe the natural systems 
businesses, finance, these all have to be aligned for us to get to where we need to go. Just moving slightly on, Annie, uh, what have you learned from the experience of the COVID crisis that you didn't know before, you know, going back uh, 18, 20 months? Besides the absolute devastating loss, which has happened everywhere among our staff, me personally and my family, I'm just going to keep that aside because all of us have felt that and still going through it. I must say, Nicholas, this is this 20 months that you just talked about actually has made me think about our world and what's happening in the world a lot. One thing that has stood out, which is I think all of us knew, but we didn't know so viscerally, is that, you know, national boundaries are just that, just boundaries. Uh, when we have a pandemic, there are no national boundaries. You don't control it as a nation state. It just, it's just happened. This is true, of course, for climate change. This was so true, what just happened, no matter how what you did as a country you actually had to look at it think about it you couldn't help it that it was a global issue yet at the same time i was stuck nicholas that how our systems that we have in place to take global collective actions all the institutions we have the uns of the world and the world banks of the world and the who's of the world i thought they they were not up to par i i thought we didn't do well as a human society as a global collective action we became suddenly a group of nation states that were very focused on what's happening in our border, knowing that you can't solve it inside the border. So that was striking to me, you know, in 2021, that was the case. The other thing that was striking, it's no surprise, but it was striking how unequal our societies are. I think for me, what was more striking that, because I work a lot in Global South, that this inequality was everywhere. It was, doesn't matter whether it was a rich country or poor country, whether it was New York or San Francisco or Kinshasa or Delhi, no matter even in a pandemic, which every, theoretically everyone suffered, in reality, the poor, the debt among the poor is much higher, even in rich countries. And the job loss among the poor is obviously higher. So the resilience that the rich have, the poor don't, when some shock comes, I don't think it was a great surprise, but it was very, very evident in my in everyone. I also think there are a couple of kind of a sweet spot, not sweet spot is a terrible thing to say in the middle of a pandemic, some surprises. One was that we are able to change our behavior when we are pushed to. You know, we always worry that behavior change is the most difficult thing to do. We all stayed at home and or work from home and change our behavior. I must say that it was shocking how much behavior change came together, how quickly. I'm not saying everyone was happy with it, but it did happen. And I think there's social scientists will be learning about how to make this happier and quicker. I also think when push come to shove, nations were able to put together enormous amount of resources, the rich nations mostly, at the disposal to recovery, about $14 trillion. We can complain that it was only in rich nation, but the fact is that unprecedented amount of funds were put together to recover. So I wonder sometimes, is it that we have not made a good enough case for climate? And that's why nations are not acting. And is there work for us to do? I also think, as you must and everyone else, that when the world came together, the development of vaccines was unprecedented speed. So it's a mix of things, but there's lots to learn from the last 20 months. And it has really shaped at least my thinking about what to do in other global issues that we all face together. But looking at some of those global issues, Annie, what are your reasons for, for feeling optimistic? We've just, just this morning as we speak, we've just had the IPCC 
report come out, putting further black clouds over our heads about how the climate is changing quicker than than we'd feared. Uh, what are the reasons for us to feel optimistic? I'm glad you mentioned the IPCC report. I hope that's that's like another scientific reminder that we are not moving fast enough. Simply, we are not moving fast enough to 2030, but we need to do things now. And I must say, the precursor to the IPCC report has been last three months of constant reports of climate-related weather changes that all of us read and have devastated countries across the world. In spite of that, Nicholas, there are multiple reasons to be very optimistic. Very might be too much to say, but I feel optimistic in few different ways. One, in spite of all this, you couldn't imagine where we are right now in two years back. Number one, that I think three of the largest economies of the world, this is the United States now, the EU, China, and soon few other big countries like India about to join, have made very significant climate goals, which two years ago, I don't think we would have imagined that would happen. So we see large economies actually not thinking, oh, we should do something or not, saying, yes, we want to do it, how to do it? How do we actually balance our development objective, our jobs objective, and climate objectives in the most positive way and the way actually WRI has been advocating for the longest time? And if you add them up, if you just look at our own reports about how many countries have come together. So I think we have shifted over the last year. You know, Andrew used to say this word called tipping point. I think there is a movement towards countries coming and there is no more debate about whether we should be doing this or not, which was the case even four or five years back. The question is how we do it, how fast to do it. And so I must say that shift is an important shift Maybe we don't feel it right now, but two, three years now, I that there, there is a shift between how development discussion and climate discussion. Number two, I think 1,600 plus businesses in the world have science-based targets for going to decarbonize their businesses. This is a very significant development that has happened over the last year and a half. Uh, there were very few before. We, our own goals was 500 because there's a momentum for businesses to understand, again, this is a shift that our businesses would not succeed in the future if we continue to not actually reshape our businesses towards a low zero carbon out for the business itself, but also the world that will take place. The third optimistic thing is about money. As you very well know, ultimately, funds have to go from hugely polluting industries like oil, gas, and others to green industries. That shift is a very critical shift for the world towards green. Now, there's about $100 trillion plus dollar in private funds that flows around the world that in- investors use from pension funds to insurance. Mark Carney, others' initiative to actually move that funds towards pledging to more green investment. That has been a sig- very significant move. $16 trillion, I think, has already been pledged, but $70 trillion has been discussed. These are very significant moves that is happening. I think we are early, like as if as if we're in the bottom of this kind of of a shift that is taking place. That makes me optimistic about a shift in thinking that's taking place in businesses, people who control money and governments. I think our job, Nicholas, is to make sure we are ready to help these people, businesses, uh, governments, companies and cities that are ready to move to help them with the science, with the practice, with the standards that is required to actually successfully transition from this high carbon, unequal societies to a low carbon and more equal societies. We have work to do.
What is your vision for WRI? You've been speaking about the how we can help find the solutions and, and kind of activate those reasons for feeling optimistic. What is your vision for, for WRI, the World Resources Institute? I think we are in a very good place in the work we have done, the kind of momentum we have created, the partnerships we created, the credibility we have created among partners. When I say partners, I mean government, businesses, cities. WRI has really worked hard over the last decade to be in this place. My objective is to use this place we are in with highest quality science, tools, and standards for this transition to become really the go-to or the partner of choice for this transition for governments, for businesses and cities and, and other civil society organizations that are trying to move from where we are to a lower carbon, a more equal society that centers on people and nature. This requires very hard amount of work to get it right. What are the tools? How do we do it? How do we balance the different outcomes that we need? We don't have the option as a society, I think, to do one thing at a time, you know, we'll fix carbon first, then we become equal, then we have prosperity, and then we'll fix nature. There is no such path. The path is narrow, and the path is that we have to solve these things at the same time. So we have to find solutions that are not only good for people and nature, but creates jobs, but also decarbonizes. And this is where I think WRI needs to be. And that was Annie Dasgupta, the new president and CEO of the World Resources Institute, explaining how he sees the environmental and developmental challenges ahead and how we will aim to find the necessary solutions. Go to our website, wri.org, for much, much more on all the issues we discussed. You'll also find many more podcasts there on everything from adaptation in African agriculture to energy access in India and the Clean Air Challenge in Mexico City. You can also subscribe via your favourite podcast app, whatever that is. I'm Nicholas Walton, and thanks for listening.